Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thanks for listening to Creative Control. Uh, while I have you here, please consider supporting Youth Empowerment and Support Services, otherwise known as YES. Based in Edmonton, Alberta, YES provides immediate and low-barrier overnight and day shelter, temporary supportive housing, and individualized wraparound supports for young people aged 15 to 24. They work collaboratively within a network of care focused on the prevention of youth homelessness by providing youth with the necessary supports to stabilize their housing, improve their well-being, build life skills, connect with community, and avoid re-entry into homelessness. Learn more about how to donate or otherwise support YES by visiting YESS.org. Creative Control, Creative Control Comedy, art, and sometimes rock and roll Let's do a public opinion poll. Raise your hand if you love creative control. Cause when Vish is unleashed, well, you. Oh. Sorry, I didn't see you there. I was just working on a tribute song to my favorite podcast, Creative Control, with Vish Khanna. My name is Matthias, and I play in a band called The Burning Hell. But more importantly, I support Creative Control on Patreon, and I think you should too. Quality long-form arts journalism is like a magical talking unicorn. It definitely exists, but it can be really hard to find. Fortunately for us, Vish makes it easy with hundreds of funny, thought-provoking, well-researched and engaging interviews with artists from all over the world. Your flexible monthly donation on Patreon will get you plenty of special exclusive treats and help Vish keep his podcast well-fed and cared for properly the way a magical unicorn deserves. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash creativecontrol today. Jason P. Woodbury is a musician, music journalist, songwriter, and podcaster based in Phoenix, Arizona. A critic who's been commissioned to write album liner notes, Woodbury's a regular contributor to the music outlet Aquarium Drunkard, where he does a few different things, including the weekly interview 
podcast Transmissions, where he's a host, as well as Range and Basin on Radio Free Aquarium Drunkard on Dublab, where he explores his love of things like comic books, science fiction, and mysticism. On September 9th, 2022, Fort Lowell Records released Something Happening, Always Happening, the debut album for Woodbury's musical alter ego, JPW. And after we uh, connected when Jason invited me to be a guest on Transmissions, uh, maybe a year ago or so, we got together again recently for this conversation where we discussed things like his time growing up in Arizona and how music reached him as a teenager, his entry point into music journalism and learning how to play guitar, his love of the Beatles and artists who write their own songs, engaging with interview subjects with a spirit of awe and enthusiasm, the powerful lull of the Sonoran Desert, and the alluring sound of JPW on this new record, future plans, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you who follow and subscribe to this podcast, and spread the word about it, and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash Control. This is a donor-driven podcast primarily, so thank you for supporting the show at patreon.com slash Control if you can. It's really appreciated. With additional support from Blackbird Music, a wonderful record store with uh, bricks and mortar locations in Edmonton and Calgary, Alberta, and very friendly employees who will help you if you walk into one of their stores or if you use the internet sometimes. You go to blackbird.ca, say you want to order the JPW record that uh, we're talking about today, Something Happening, Always Happening. Well, you go into their search box and you type all that stuff in and if you're fortunate, and we're all fortunate, they can send you a copy of this album. They'll ship it to your house. Uh, if you're less fortunate, they'll they may make you come to Edmonton or Calgary if you're not already there, because that's sometimes what happens. Anyway, you either pick it up in the store or they'll ship it to you. You figure it out. Learn more at blackbird.ca. Plus, in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee, respectively, in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario. This is episode 780 of Creative Control, featuring the lovely and talented Jason P. Woodbury with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi, Jason. How's it going? It's going fantastic. That's good. That's good to hear. Where in the world are you? I am in Phoenix, Arizona, in the uh, Sonoran Desert, where 
I have lived for much of my life. Yeah, that's where you're, you're, you're from there. Is that where you're like kind of uh, uh, raised as well? Is that where you're getting at? I was raised, I, I mean, I, I spent the first few years of my life in a small suburb of Phoenix called Chandler, Arizona. Mm. And then my family moved further south to a town called Coolidge, Arizona, which is where I spent my youth kind of between Chandler and Coolidge. My mom lived in Chandler and my family... My dad's family lived in in Coolidge, so that's where I spent most of my time. But yeah, kind of small town Arizona, and then I moved back up to the Phoenix metro area after okay. high school or whatever. Yeah. Well, any uh, any significant music interaction or arts and culture kind of interaction in the small towns? In the small town, Coolidge. Yeah. Well, I mean, kind of in a certain way because there was. I mean, there wasn't you know much of a music scene in in Coolidge, but um. There were a few older bands, some kind of punk dudes that I am now, you know, talk with some of these guys who are maybe a few years older than me. But there were a few bands out of their kind of really well-known emo band Jimmy World once played a show down there. I did not make it to that show, but that was like <laughs> a legend. You know, you'd hear about that. Legendary show. Yeah. Yeah. So that so that happened. But I started playing music with friends and you know, a couple other kids did the same. And, and so we were kind of a three band music scene or something like that, you know, staging yeah. generator shows in the desert and stuff like that. Yeah. So that's the local stuff, I guess where I was coming from in terms of, and I'm sorry if I missed this, how far away was Coolidge from Phoenix again? Oh, it's about, is it? Sorry. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's not, <laughs> it's, 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 it's like a 45 minute drive up, oh, up the 87. So it's, it's not really that, that, Far, but in some ways, like rural Arizona, still feels like it's pretty far from from Phoenix. And even you know Ch- Chandler, where I grew up, it, like I said, it's a suburb. So the music scene, especially in Phoenix, I mean, there were definitely bands. And and I, when I was a kid, in particular, the Tempe scene sort of had started to yeah. blow up. So groups like the Gin Blossoms are like probably the most famous famous group, and. So that music was super important to me. And as I've gotten older, I mean, I kind of feel like the Gin Blossoms or White Fence did a, a cover of a Gin Blossom song for Aquarium Drunkard, Allison Road. And I think he really pinpoints just how much they sound like, you know, Big Star or the Birds, you yeah. know, so they kind of pointed me in that. The Jangle Pop stuff pointed me in that direction. I see. So you, uh, beyond the local stuff and the and the regional stuff, uh, did you have uh, opportunities to see bands when they would visit uh, some of the bigger places yeah by the time i got into high school i started to go to shows mostly at that time i would have been into like kind of punk and emo type stuff i guess so i would go see shows at a venue called the nile uh, in in mesa and then as i got into more like indie rock stuff there was a venue in downtown phoenix called modified arts that was really important and so you know, around whatever, 2002, 2003, 2004, start getting into stuff like the Unicorns. I remember they had played there and uh, and I saw The Good Life, which was like a cursive side, pro- you know, so stuff like that. So yeah, I started, eventually once I started going to shows, I mean, it was just like a, f- a foregone conclusion to me that I needed to move out of the small town and get to Phoenix so I could go to shows all the time. And so yeah, that's what I did. 
Nice. And so were you already playing music by the time you started seeing bands like those? Yeah, basically started playing music when I was in... I mean, I played in like the school band, you know? So there was that. That was one side of it. I played clarinet in the school band. And I guess that was where I learned whatever I know of music theory, which is not... I don't know a lot, but... My uncle and my dad would play, had played in their in their youth, and so my uncle had guitars everywhere, and my dad had a bass, and, you know, so I would kind of have access to that stuff. So, yeah, I started kind of fiddling around with that in junior high, and then in high school, like everybody, I met a friend who had a guitar, and I was like, we should start a band, and I could, I mean, I could barely play, uh, and he wasn't much farther along. He knew, he figured out power chords, so that was like a revelation, but yeah, so oh, we started learning. Yeah, that, those yeah. are huge. You figure yeah, out some so, power chords? Yeah. What was so funny is that this is my friend Zane who who plays on the JPW record. We've played together, I don't know, since like 1999 or something crazy. But um, I remember we would try to, we would learn songs and I had like the Ramones anthology and mm-hmm. maybe, you know, we had like a, a Weezer, some Weezer tabs or whatever. Yeah. But I remember we would, I would, be trying to play Ramon songs, but I didn't know power chords, so I was I was doing full chords, you know, full C chord, full D chord, full G, full G, and I was like, it sounds correct, but not right. Like I don't understand <laughs> what am I doing, you know? And Sorry, like, you're playing open chords or bar chords? I was playing open chords, open chords, yeah, yeah. open chords, and 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 so he showed up and he was like, hey, check it out. You, you don't even need all those fingers, man. You only need two <laughs> fingers. And I was like, okay, cool. So that was that was sort of it. But yeah, you know, and what's funny though is that later, much later, once I start to, once I had moved up to the, the valley is what we call it, and started working in a record store and started getting like really seriously into music, I realized that Coolidge, bizarrely enough, this, this kind of small rural Arizona town where I had grown up had a crazy music history. Uh, Waylon Jennings was on the radio there just post the Buddy Holly stuff. Lee Hazelwood got his start on that same station. Dwayne Eddy, you know, the famous kind of surf pioneer, proto-surf, you know, twangy guitar stuff. All those guys had lived in Coolidge. So I I, like kind of like later, I feel like I, I, developed an intense connection to that music too you know and i felt like there was some um connection there you know despite the fact that i certainly that was many years before i was alive that they were doing anything down there that is weird though because uh, i grew up in a town called cambridge ontario and uh it's about uh, an hour and 15 minutes from toronto and there was a rumor that started circulating in the in the late eighties that guns and roses had played Cambridge at like this tiny restaurant bar thing. And, and and by the time the rumor circulated, it was because, and I was not a fan by the way, but by the time the (laughs) I just want to clarify that it didn't excite me. It was, but it was neat because by that, by the time the rumor circulated, they were quite huge appetite for destruction had come out. And, um, I thought about, I've thought about this because on the one hand we were like, wow, they played, the Highlands, that stupid restaurant near the hospital? Like, why would they have done that? And why didn't we know about it? I mean, we would have been too young as well to attend. But does that knowledge... What I'm wrestling, what I've I've thought about it since is like, what did that even do? 
No one else yeah. ever played Cambridge. We would go to Waterloo or Kitchener or Toronto or wherever we had to go. Guelph, where I used to live, to see shows. People rarely there were no venues in Cambridge, but at the same time, it felt kind of neat. So when you discover your his the history of your area, does it impact you as a musician, as a fan of music? I guess so. It must to some degree because you know Lee Hazelwood is is one of my favorite musicians, and yeah. when. Light in the Attic started their reissue yeah. campaign. For me, it was, I mean, I was such a huge fan of Light in the Attic. My One of my kind of writing mentors, a guy named Chris Esty, who had written for a kind of smaller magazine that I was really obsessed with called Bandoppler Magazine. Uh, they were kind of out of the Pacific Northwest, and it was maybe loosely aligned with like a sort of Christian rock sensibility, a Christian mm-hmm. indie rock sensibility, crindy uh, is what some people will call it, uh, you know, Christian indie rock. So I had sort of, he started working for Light in the Attic in their very early days when um, I remember one of the first times I ever got a package from a, a label as like a music writer was like a CD, the Black Angels Passover album and uh, maybe an Alton Ellis release that they had done, you know, CD copies. So, but when light in the attic started their Lee Hazelwood reissue project for me, I was working at an alt weekly here in Phoenix, the Phoenix new times. And I was just so excited. Cause it was like, this is this awesome music that I am just obsessed with. I love Lee's sensibility. I love the weird romantic sweep of it. And, and, Obviously, he made his most well-known records in L.A. and Sweden, you know, post-Arizona. But nonetheless, I felt like there's a connection to it. And so I was able to connect with, like, there's a local historian, John Dixon, who is essentially Arizona's premier music archivist. And so he had worked with Light in the Attic on that stuff. And he's, of course, worked with Numero Group and Bear Family and all of those labels, you know. So I was able to connect with him. And just start to like understand what he was doing and why it was important to him to preserve a regional thing. And and so, yeah, I do think that however it works, all of that did kind of get into my head. And certainly, you know, one of the weird things about putting out a record after, you know, much more time writing about music or, you know, uh, sort of talking to musicians you know to put something out yourself you know you do end up so many people have referenced the desert equalities of the record and i just i don't know you know it's it's definitely not any like choices conscious decisions that i made but i definitely think they're in there and the producer michael krasner when i sent him some of the demos he had associations you know to his youth on the Verde River in Arizona. He's like, this reminds me of this one Saturday afternoon. My friend had a Camaro and we took it to the <laughs> lake. And I was like, that's so cool to me. Yeah. Because I mean, I have no idea how that stuff got in there, but hmm. that, but it is in there for, for wherever it is. You know, you, you, where you come from shapes you, I think, very profoundly and very, uh, if, and if you're okay with that or even if you're not okay with it, it happens, it's, you know? <laughs> it's you. That's who you are. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, I appreciate all that background. I I think you and I uh, may uh, share similar trajectories in that I think we entered 
Sorry, I don't want to even speculate. I'll tell you where I'm coming from real briefly. And I, by the way, thanks again for having me on the aquarium, the, the transmission show. Uh, that was, a, oh, it was so much fun. Many months ago. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it as well. So thank you so much for that. Um, and we covered some of this ground there. And I'll link to that episode uh, just in case uh, people might have missed it because it was, uh, was it last year? Was it last year I was on the show? I think it was. The time is yeah. just blurry for me. But just thinking about our, our trajectories, um, in my case, uh, got into music at a young age, listening, and then would devour all the media I could, and then started eventually figuring out, oh, I can try to play the music. Played music in bands, made records, all that kind of stuff. And then some, in some ways, simultaneously started to enter uh, freelance journalism, then college radio and broadcasting, then professional broadcasting, professional journalism, whatever those things mean. And now, mm-hmm. you know, I'm in the middle of a couple of feelings and, and modes where I, as we're speaking, Jason, I just started embarking on an, an interesting recording project for the first time in a decade. And yet I'm probably um, most known for this podcast that I do and uh, whatever that means, most known. I, I, I put a lot of work into it. And um, so it is my primary, uh, besides my day job and, and family stuff, it's my primary thing I do. But it is a weird realm. I sometimes, if I think about it, it's weird how I got here and that intertwining player, fan, journalism, journalist, uh, broadcaster. Is it safe to say you have a kind of similar trajectory? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, very much so. And I do think we talked about this a little bit on transmissions. Uh, I guess when you're young, you don't know what you're doing, essentially. I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I, I was always pretty instinctual in terms of my actions. You know what I mean? And so I was always, I grew up with like kind of a collector mentality. I was into comic books. I was interested in, you know, uh, science fiction. I was interested in stuff like that. And all of those things required kind of immersing yourself and figuring out what you are into and figuring out how to figure out what you're into essentially, you know, like what that process looks like. And well, I liked this, so maybe I would like this. And so I was primed for music hmm. uh, taking hold the way it did. And yeah, in high school, I mean, it was just, I I just became obsessed with listening to music and playing music and thinking about music and even in high school, nascently writing about music. Yeah, same here. For sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there was a school newspaper, barely, when I was in Coolidge at Coolidge High School, but I I signed up for the class, and, and for whatever reason, it had become, as I remember it, kind of like a like a like a a screw around class. Like people would sign up oh. for it, kind of knowing that they probably wouldn't have to do anything, oh. uh, and so that was sort of the deal, which was fine. I mean, I didn't know better, but once I got there, I was just sort of like well, I really want to make the school newspaper. And I think this is, there's like one other kid who contributed some articles, but basically I just started reviewing records for the school newspaper that barely existed, you know, just went anything. I just, that, stuff that's, I was, the, I, that's the first thing I did, but it was counter programming. We didn't like the student council newspaper. So uh, this guy, Jeff and I, uh, decided we would do, it was called, uh, the school mascot was a Panther. So the, uh, this is how contrary we were even at the end of high school. School the mascot was uh, a panther. The newspaper was called Cattails. 
And yeah. we thought uh, we didn't like the student council popular kids that much. Uh, and so we called uh, our thing cattle as though they were <laughs> herds of sheep or whatever. You know, we were very, sure. had a lot of attitude. Yeah, that's the first. I remember I reviewed um, the Blues Explosion remix album that came out yeah. in, after Orange. And I wrote a review. That's the first thing I wrote a review of in my life was high school at the end of high school. But it was weirdly contrary. And there was a rebellious aspect to it. I didn't want to do it for the school paper. So, but yeah, I was so yeah. immersed in music journalism. And in that time, coming from a relatively small town too, that meant Rolling Stone, Spin, starting to find fanzines and things like that at that age. Um, and that was eye opening and, and empowering for me. And I gather you had a bit of that too. Like you started to feel like, because that to me oh. is what that's what this music stuff is. It's like I can do that. I actually they're not superhuman. They're not gods. We can and and music journalism. You know, it's 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 you can talk to people. You can interview people. Did you have that opening? Very much. Yeah, yeah very much so. I my I remember my mom got me a, a subscription to Spin, which was just like a, a an absolute lifeline. Yeah. You know, for yeah. me, it's easy now to kind of discount. I mean, that it was of course. When it comes to alternative culture, I mean, Spin was sort of at the top of the the heap, you know, I yeah. mean, in terms of its proximity to what was really popular or whatever. But no, I remember Spin was hugely important. Um, I would read Rolling Stone. Uh, I started to, uh, I would get alternative press. And then, yeah, you kind of start to tip your toes. I could get to, if I'd get to cooler record stores or, or bookstores, you know, stuff like... um like magnet, you know, yeah, or course. in yeah. those days, a lot more, you know, I, I would even, I would read blender, you know, I'd read yeah. kind of whatever, like just any, anything. I almost had no, there was almost no filter on it. And, and then as the internet starts to become more of a thing, I mean, I really, I do remember pitchfork in the very early, early yeah. days. And, and I started writing for, uh, I actually did a, a, a tiny bit of journalism for a web version of Bandoppler, the magazine that I mentioned earlier. That's where I got it. They, they let me write some stuff and then tiny mixtapes, oh, yeah. which was a direct path to eventually writing for the Alt Weekly, eventually, you know, that's starting easy, and that's with, query, with how, Aquarium Drunkard, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. How huge is that? Like, I grew up in high school reading Exclaim magazine, which is Canada's national free yeah. music magazine and then I got to write for them and you know I devoured totally. P- punk planet and and all, and there's a great there was a great zine called filler that was based in Kitchener Ontario and they interviewed everybody that I'm still into today so yeah it's 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 interesting our trajectories cuz I I was also like I say simultaneously trying to figure out how to play the drums trying to figure out how to play guitar now we're both in a position where we uh have these podcasts that some people pay attention to um do you ever wrestle with who you are what am i doing because you've made this beautiful record you seem very equipped uh this jpw record that i'm referring to in particular wonderful record it's so gorgeous and you seem very equipped i i gather you're something of a multi-instrumentalist at this point in your life and you're playing a bunch of stuff i think (laughs) and uh it's lovely but do you wrestle with this a little bit like who am i what am i really doing kind of thing yeah, of course. I do <laughs> wrestle with it. And I do and I do you know, for a long time when I started getting into stuff, right? Like so I finish high school, I do some community college also in central Arizona where I was growing up. 
And I did that for a couple of years. I had a scholarship for my first two years because I, I'm going to be pretty frank. There wasn't a ton of competition for kind of like high, high GPAs in the, in the Coolidge high school thing. So like almost everybody probably could have gone to the community college for free for a couple of years. Like I I did, yeah. but I kind of, while that was happening was playing music, you know, and, and had moved out of my parents' house pretty, pretty young. I moved out of my, moved out on my own. I was still as maybe I was 19 or I might've been 18 still. Regardless, it was pretty fresh, you know? Yeah. And I lived with people who I played music with. And so we would just play music until two in the morning. And then I would go to school and work at a grocery store, you know, or for the health department a while. So I just, but music, so like writing about music, playing music, they were just happening at the same time for the most part, neither with a ton of success or recognition or particular skill, certainly in those days, but they were all happening at the same time. And then I moved up to Tempe, Arizona, which is where my grandparents, my mom's parents live. And so I actually lived just down the street from them and got a job at a record store and kind of still fooled around with school a little bit. But at that point, kind of started moving more in the direction of I'm going to play shows, I'm going to work in this record store, and I'm going to write about music. And I don't, I'll just do those things, you know, and I'll just do them all the time, maybe. And I'll get better at them probably just by virtue of doing them you know that was that was I didn't have it so sketched out in my mind that's for sure but I did sort of have that sense I just I just want to I know what I want to do and it's it's this stuff yeah and so I guess in a weird way working in the record store writing about music those two fed into each other Mm -hmm. then you're playing music and then that feeds into it so you've got an ecosystem an internal ecosystem in this weird way and I didn't think much about it. I just was doing them all, you know, and then got a job at the Alt Weekly Phoenix New Times, which again, similar to your situation with Exclaim, like I I read that as a kid, you know, and writers like Bob Mayer specifically yeah. who uh who I've had the pleasure of interviewing, you know, in my adulthood, but reading his stuff when I was younger was, was huge, you know, and people like there's a critic named Serene Dominic who was really important. And, and these guys were, yeah. So I start working there and then just the natural thing of life sort of starts happening a little bit. Maybe a couple bandmates move away or somebody graduates college and gets a job. And now, well, the drummer's gone and you join another band, but that band doesn't have the same drive as the previous. And then, kind of in a weird way I found myself for a decade or so just not really playing music you know still doing it every now and then for fun yeah. certainly always doing it on my own getting together with buddies and play a show every couple of years things like that but you know at this point it feels so boring and passe to talk about the the pandemic to some degree but I can't deny the fact that when all of a sudden things shifted and changed and the lockdowns sort of went into effect. I mean, I found myself with a lot more bandwidth, you know, and the podcast transmissions, which I had been doing for years with the aquarium drunkard, we locked into a groove and things felt super good. And we took the show weekly and all of a sudden that started to sort of, you know, snowball in terms of, 
just how good it felt. And we were doing the Radio Free Aquarium Drunkard stuff in those days, which was a, we still do as a monthly broadcast on Dublab. But in the, in the early days of the pandemic, I mean, launched a 24 hour pirate radio stream online, you know, and, and, and people all over the world were listening. And so I think that that open space and this, this feeling of a sort of, I mean, probably, certainly a, f- a huge amount of fear about the state of the world and a huge amount of anxiety about various things and all of that. But also I think for me, at least in those early days, I had a real sense of optimism that this was going to sort of um, change the way people think about our relationship to each other, our relationship in community, our relationship to art i mean everybody i know in those days was listening to music and i remember people saying you know oh i've been getting out cds that i hadn't listened to in years and years or oh i went and was looking through all these records that i had amassed and never even listened to so i i just i had this feeling and the degree to which that took hold societally uh maybe not what i thought it might be but on a personal level something shifted and unlocked and changed. And um, I had been in the process of getting ready to make a record with my friends in the group uh, Kitimoto, and we had done a bunch of practices. And towards the end of 2020, um, we did a session, you know, when, when there was the first sort of like, I think it's maybe safe to do stuff again. And then immediately it became clear that it wasn't safe to do stuff again. So then a couple months later, you know, we finished that record, but finished that record and then just rolled right into making this one. And it just, for me, you know, I guess you, cause you asked like, do, do do I ask myself, you know, who am I? What am I? (laughs) What, you know, I I do. And I did. And I was nervous about putting music out into the world. I was really nervous and, and, and a little hung up on the idea that I, it's hard to even say what it was. It's like a combination of, of anxieties and stresses and fears and, and nervousness, you know, like are people going to think that I am saying that I'm worthy of putting out a record? Yeah. It sounds like a ridiculous notion. No, but I, it did. I, I'm going it my th- head. I'm going through it right now. I'm doing the same <laughs> thing as you uh, and engaging in a long distance process pro- project. And I'm, it's a very weird approach to it and we're still kind of operating. It's all very remote. It's all meant to be a remote project with remote mm. collaboration. And, um, uh, I've had the same thoughts, like just given the primary collaborator I'm working with, I'm like, this is out of my league, but they seem into it and they're encouraging me. And I'm sure you've my- been, you've been encouraged <laughs> as well. No, 100%. My collaborator, my main collaborator on, on Something Happening, Always Happening is Michael Krasner, who uh, is from a group called Boxhead Ensemble, and he had also played under the name Lofty Pillars, and he's done a bunch of his own work. He did this really incredible score for a uh, Universal Soldier movie, uh, 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 which was like, I don't know, it came out about a decade ago, um, and it was this art house it's very upsetting, very graphic, but also really good. Uh, sort of, if A twenty four had existed when this was coming out, I think they. I honestly think it could feel like an A twenty four movie. You could mm-hmm. call it like an elevated genre thing. But so Krasner has just, and he's obviously he's worked with. I mean, people Jim O'Rourke and Will Oldham. These people who, in yeah, my wildest most 
self-inflated moments would never dare to uh, think of myself in relation to in musical, you know, capacities at all, right? So, but he was, yeah, super encouraging. And also, I discovered a side of myself that was more encouraging and kind to myself that I hadn't been in touch with, you know? And that was maybe Krasner and... Zane and my friend Zach Toporek, who's on the record, you know, these guys were so deeply uh, kind and encouraging and excited. They were excited by what I was bringing to the table. They were like, no, this is this is cool. This is something that is worth us, you know, putting our time into. And in the weirdest way, a few of the songs came together in the very, very start. It really did feel like that, um, like maybe a block or something that had been in front of my subconscious or unconscious mind had, had lifted whatever it was. I don't know. Maybe it's getting a little older. Maybe it's facing a strange future. Maybe it's realizing on some level, well, if you want to do this, you might not have an infinite amount of time to do things. You know what I mean? Sorry, so it's is like, it, these realizations are <laughs> pandemic. Uh, sorry, post, yeah, like since the I don't want so to say post pandemic, but since the beginning of the pandemic, you've had these. Yeah, 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 yeah more, more, yeah. yeah, or maybe a little bit more of a recognition of that stuff, stuff that you probably that I knew instinctually, or obviously we all know these things on some level. But yeah, no, the it, the 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 strangeness of the situation pulled it into focus in a new way. Among the things that have been affected by this collective experience, I think, are uh, everyone's relationship with time and also what's important. So when I earlier asked you if you pose such questions to yourself like I do, like, what am I doing? Who am I really? I don't. Mm-hmm. I didn't expect you to have answers to those. There aren't any real answers to those. We're dynamic people, uh, human beings. So I think where I'm, what I'm also picking up on and I can relate to is I'm just doing things. I'm just doing the things that seem right and, and are in front of me. And if that means I'm making a, a podcast right now, and that also means I'm making music right now or writing about music or whatever, they all are complementary. And you use the word feed into each other. And the one thing that sparked for me is I wonder if you can relate to the notion that they might actually be informing one another. Now, I know some people might be like, why would interviewing someone or writing about music, how could that inform you as a player or as a composer yourself? And I've thought about that um, and all my with all the different hats I've worn from the stuff I've already described, journalism and performance and recording. I've also wound up emceeing slash stage handing stage handing being a stage hand <laughs> at uh, music yeah. festivals and being on um i've never run a label but being on like juries i've just been so immersed in various aspects of the industry by accident like by the like the traditional music putting on shows like that's a whole mm-hmm. other that's a whole other skill set and a level of work planning events but for some reason i've done it and it's just because yeah. someone had to do it and i happened to be the one who stepped up at that point and i've tried to slow things down all i'm getting at is and my question for you really is beyond feeding into one another, do you feel like all the different things you do actually practically tangibly inform everything you're doing? Yeah, I do. I yeah. do think that they do. And I think that 
I think that the things that a person does, the things that a person truly immerses themselves in, can't help but inform what comes out. I I, I love the Beatles. The Beatles are one of my favorite yeah. bands, right? Yeah, I got the two. I got the vinyl and the mono box <laughs> set up there, and I got them on compact disc. And uh, first, my first love. You, yeah. There you go. Me too. And they were, I mean, hearing the Beatles, I didn't actually grow up in a Beatles household. That wasn't my mom and dad's music. My mom was more into like Tesla. My dad more into Boston. So, you know, not Beatles people necessarily. You know what I'll tell you real quick about that though is uh, I would mostly <laughs> agree with you on, uh, or rather, yeah. rather, I can relate to you uh, with that. However, I will tell you that my parents immigrated to Canada from India. So when I got into mm. the Beatles, they're like, oh, do you know the Beatles came to India? And I was like, yeah. Yeah. And that was significant. The same way you were, you were talking about, um, bands yes. coming through town and, and making your place feel like it was worth them doing that. And that made the place feel more special. My parents would talk quite, well, my mother mostly. My dad didn't say too much about it, but my mother was like, spoke of them fondly that they would take the time and immerse themselves in Indian culture and, and spiritual practice. Except maybe she didn't know how much Ringo didn't like it. But my point is, uh, <laughs> yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't into the no, food. No, he wanted right? to go home and he split as <laughs> early as he could. That's Ringo. But my point is, uh, I just want to say, like, I would often ask my parents to play the music that my cousin got me into or whatever is on the radio if I could buy a fine young cannibals tape or whatever the heck I had in excess. Yeah. They would tolerate that. But when we would go on uh, drives uh, across the highway to visit my mom's relatives about an hour away, um, frequently, like almost twice a month, we would make those trips and we would listen to music and they would play some of their music, but they always liked the Beatles. And I, I yeah. now can't help but think it, it, that fondness comes from the fact that, yeah, those are the guys who came. And I mean, God, you put on Revolver, Sgt. Pepper, there's sitar on it. Like, what do you... They were just like, this is... It was like we were kind of communing over them. So, sorry for my extended... No. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, that's that's beautiful. Yeah. I, br I bring up the Beatles to, to, to sort of, like, make the point that the Beatles set the template for what a rock band should be. Something that they didn't intend to do, but I think happened as a result of the Beatles, though also, was this emphasis placed on sort of authorship and individual creative capacity. Yeah. And I guess what I mean to say is like before that, you know, you get like an Elvis or whatever, and Elvis was not a songwriter. Yeah. You know, Elvis was an interpreter of of songs. Yeah. Uh, Sinatra was an interpreter of songs. You know, you can look at parts of Scott Walker's career where Scott Walker is not he's not acting as a songwriter. He's a singer, yeah. you know, and, uh, that wasn't viewed as sort of invalid. And then in, in the post Beatles age, there's this idea that like a songwriter, a rock songwriter, you know, is this person who's creating this original thing yeah. that is not, you know, and I, I get it and I love, and there's parts of that that are just so true. And I do get, but I also think that, our creative our creativity is is the result of synthesis and is the result of hearing things that resonate on very deep levels and and taking things into our imaginal capacities and running them through the filter that is us you know and producing something from that that 
just the same way that I can say that where I'm from got into the music, you know, so, so has hearing the Velvet Underground on a bus trip, you know, to Flagstaff when I was a kid, you know, sophomore year, putting the 20th century masters, uh, Velvet's CD on my Walkman and hearing the first few songs and being like, it's kind of cool. And then getting to heroin and being like, you know, the, big bang right in your head that that takes place yeah that got into me on some level that i'll never ever ever be able to untangle it from the part of my brain that says now we're gonna make a song you know so i do think that like you brought up our relationship with time and to me maybe that's part of what's happened since i've really given myself permission to play music again and to engage in that um, was I I was taken by the way music can bend time and the way I can be transported back into my own biography into yeah. you know whatever by hearing a song and so I think that really what happened for me was once playing music started giving me some related feeling to the magic that I had experienced listening to music, you know, uh, which wasn't always, I always was electrified by playing music. I always loved playing music. I was always engaged in it and it always was a thrill, but all of a sudden I was making songs that didn't feel the same way that previous songs had to me, or some part of me had let a guard down that I was like, well, I just, I want to make this. And I think the rule is that if you feel like this making it if it's scratching an itch for you on a personal level there is a chance that it could do that for somebody else in some yeah. way and to recognize that that's not about your ego and that's not about uh any of those other things that I'd been worried about or hung up yeah. on was a freeing thing and so yeah once that happened it was like i think i have to put stuff out cuz i want to reciprocate you know whatever that means i don't know what it means but it is yeah i'm just just going with my gut instinct on it well it's in our in our work as uh, interviewers it's just an interesting time i think for the kinds of um the, the kind of journalism that has been adopted via mm-hmm. podcasting which is the sort of in my case i I'm having, and as this one, as the, just as we are having right now, I, they're free-form conversations that, for me anyway, have a purpose. Uh, and I'm trying to get to people's work and and their approach to stuff. But it, uh, where you can get lost, and on the in, in my lowest uh, skill set here, where I get lost is where I I, I want to relate to my guest, uh, who I don't know often. Uh, often they're strangers to me. And uh, sometimes if I think on it, I'm like, yeah, I play drums. And I'm like, why am I, why am I putting that out there? Uh, well, how does that inform the conversation? And I think it's because I want to be like, yeah, I can relate to what you're doing. I've made, I've made records. I've gone on tour. Uh, I've done some comedy. I've written things. And I, I guess I just wonder if you're ever conscious of that. Because I appreciate everything you're saying and the thoughtfulness of like, why would I put out a record? Who's going to want that? Is it weird to do it if I'm known maybe more mm-hmm. for one thing to then throw my hat into the ring? And for me, I'm sensitive to it because 
I've written some negative reviews of music over the years because I've had to. And uh, who As am I? I? Yeah. yeah. Who am I to say anything once I put out something and someone slags it, you know? Um, anyway. Yeah. My point is, do you ever get that level of self-conscious of like, am I trying to put myself too much into the conversation in an effort to relate to this guest I admire or whose work I look up to? Because you kind of want to find some... I, if I think on it, I'm trying to, I reach out to people because I like them, but a lot of these mm-hmm. kinds of conversations are trying to find some kinship in the moment, uh, quickly. Yeah. yeah. Do you relate to any of that? I do, and I think that my own musical practice has um, has not come up on the podcast very often right you know like i don't i don't i don't always volunteer it and i guess i am i am somewhat conscious of that because because as the host this is it's complicated it's a complicated it's a complicated (laughs) untangling right because hmm, you know it's similar to what i'm saying about like about music when i feel the song on a on an emotional level I believe that's because I've poured enough of myself into the song uh, that it has some spark of humanity, and that's what a listener will hear, maybe you know, yeah, yeah. or not. Yeah. But that's what that's what I hear when I love a song is I'm hearing some distilled expression of an individual or a group of individuals or a scene of indi- whatever it is, and so I do think that in the podcast and when I'm talking to people for Aquarium Drunkard or for Wastoids, which is another project I do with my friend Sam, and we do a show where we just talk to each other and it's similar with him and it's similar with the different guests on Transmissions, is like I am trying to get myself into a state of uh, enthusiasm for the conversation. Yeah. It's resonating with me on an emotional or yeah. spiritual or spiritual or creative level you know so yeah. and i do believe that that as a host you have to put enough of yourself into the thing that a listener is not just there for the guest they're also at least partially there for me and i try to maintain again this is usually done instinctually and without really planning or thinking too yeah. much. I mean, I think you relate very much that too. Yeah. Cause you can't, you can't overthink it or you get in a different kind of weeds, but yeah, but I do think that it's like, okay, I, I'm here to be enthusiastic and curious and excited for the listener too. Like I'm, yeah. I'm going to bring that energy to this. And I hope that by, expressing that through my own side of the conversation i hope that i'm creating the space for the listener to then feel that as well because you know i've been really obsessed vish lately i've been obsessed with um douglas rushkoff's podcast team human oh and and i like how he keeps talking about cultivating awe as not just like a a good thing to do but maybe like a survival tactic you know to just sort of like always remain open to awe and wonder and excitement and if i've done anything good with aquarium drunker transmissions i think it's trying to maintain a 
root connection to my own enthusiasm for the idea of songs and music yeah. and art yeah. and expression and yeah. creative stuff. So I think that's like it's like I try to I try to keep something like a beginner's mind in terms of the conversations. I try to ask questions yeah. as they as they as they come yeah. naturally driven by my own enthusiasms and and yeah and I do think that in a weird way that's you got to pour yourself into the vessel so that so that it has some humanity to it and I think guests resonate with that and I definitely think that listeners when it works I hope right, so. they resonate I hope so I think so I hope so and I I'm I'm yeah from my perspective uh, I think you and I have pretty similar approaches to how we yeah. do things. Uh, and, and similar guest lists, as we've discussed in <laughs> yes. the past, every now and then. <laughs> yes, and I think that's great. I mean, I, I think that... We, Me too. There's a little bit of podcast kinship that's developing among... I feel like I'm part of a small community of people with, Me too. who are like-minded. And, that, and that's that, to me, is like uh, the same way... I was just talking to someone uh, this morning about... Uh, we were talking about a different artist and how they're both on tour at the same time. So they keep seeing each other's posters at the same venues. Yeah. And uh, on some level, when we launch our podcasts uh, and our, we get our notifications, it's kind of like the same thing. Oh, Transmissions is yeah. in town. And well, who do they yep. got going on? You know, so I, I appreciate that. <laughs> and uh, I, I am also not trying to overthink too much. But with this pandemic, there's been a lot to overthink. And uh, and also, like you like, I don't know, I picked up guitar more. I played more yeah. guitar. I, a lot of people have told me, well, I took up an instrument. I've tried to use this time to um, enhance something or get to something I haven't been able to get to before. And of course, uh, some of that is waning now. But um, all this to say, uh, I appreciate these insights. This record of yours, uh, like I say, is really wonderful. And you were talking about people picking up on uh, desert themes. My wife, uh, when she first heard some of the scorching guitar was like this kind of reminds me of like Nels Klein or someone I'm like whoa that's a pretty mm. big compliment um I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the sound and also maybe some of the lyrical motifs you, you talked about this seismic shift that you've undergone and and you've experienced <laughs> um and I assume that's informed uh some of this songwriting which I think is both uh it's pleasant but pensive I'll put it that way I feel like there's something mm. looming there um, but I'm, I'm oh, speaking, uh, that's awesome to hear. <laughs> can you talk a little bit about what motivated, uh, both the sound and maybe some of the lyrics on this JPW record? Yeah, I think a lot of the sound, you know, most of these songs started as, um, me, you know, by myself with either a drum machine and a bass or guitar and, in some ways, I was worried that they, they felt a little grab baggy. They didn't all fit exactly into the same sort of genre, right? But I had enough of a sense of the shape of it to just sort of like, okay, let's just start fleshing this stuff out and letting it go. So some of the stuff is done almost entirely on my own, um, but a lot of it was done in collaboration with Michael Krasner, yeah. who is for like a full disclosure's sake, like most of the good guitar playing on this record <laughs> is him. Okay. Um, no, I, I, I say that only, I mean, I say that half joking. I, I play a lot of guitar on the record too. And I, and I am very 
I, I like playing guitar yeah. an awful lot. And so I, I had a lot of fun with this one and there are some, there's some moments that are definitely me, but he brought so much, um, so much to the, to the proceedings and he plays the piano on the record as well. And both of those things, you know, we would have these conversations. I make Range and Basin, which is the Dub Lab radio show on Radio Free Aquarium Drunkard. We make that together as well. And he brought a kind of selflessness to his playing where his, his, and this is a guy who does the same thing on records with Caliphone. Yep. You know, he's, him and Tim have, they go way back. And he does it with pretty much everybody he works with. He's listening for what it needs to sprinkle on there and take it to the next level. And so his sort of twangy, lonesome guitar just started to inform the, I think, the foundation of the record, which is this sort of mid-century, that's a thing that I'm, I'm, I definitely like this, this feel, right? The sort of, um, desert evoking twang music of of somebody like Dwayne Eddy who I brought up and I think I think that kind of guitar style certainly has fed into the to the Nels Klein stream you know but yeah. also Krasner's a dude with Chicago roots as well oh, wow. so he's go. pulling from that he's like I mean Jeff Jeff Tweedy's been on at, on his records in Glen early early days, yeah. you know, so there's crossover there. Oh, there you go, okay. But I do think that's a big that's a big part of it, and it's obviously. I mean, Wilco is one of those bands where it's just like they just it's a foundational band for me. Are they absolutely. okay? Yeah. So, so that's something that's in there. But then I also think there are other little things that don't exactly do that exact same thing on the record. And Cruel in Time is an example where, I mean. In my head, I was trying to make something that sounded like suicide, and yeah, it no, that's <laughs> that's so weird. That's exactly what I I, I hear. I hear that. I I hear bits yeah. of pavement, pavement though too. Sometimes, like I hear all sorts of things. You definitely hear pavement for sure. Um, yeah. The Kitimoto record as well. That's one where yeah. all John, who's the the singer songwriter in that band, and the other guys, we are all pavements like one of our um you know where we all meet in the middle kind of influences so that's definitely in there but yeah so that's sort of a little bit about the sound and then i wanted it to be weird and spacey at moments and the final track being built on this link this lenny k sample that yeah talk talk about somebody by the way who has written about music who has performed music who has assembled records you know all the stuff he's like a he's a he's a shining light in that regard but so i wanted it to get psychedelic at moments i wanted it to feel kind of funny every now and then like wealth of the wealth of the canyon is kind of the the single Mm -hmm. and that's built on this great jj kalish kind of thing that krasner had cooked up and then i did kind of improvised uh falsetto vocals over and and we shaped that into a thing but there's this one part where Zach and I were working on it in his studio, Zach Toporek, who plays under the name Dadweed, and we play together a lot now. But I was like, this part where there's an eagle in the song, it would be funny if we had like a really overt eagle screech right, in it. Right. And so we like went on YouTube and va- found it, and then we just like dunked it in reverb, and we were like, yes, that's so funny. <laughs> and it's and it was silly though too, you know what I mean? So yeah, I was yeah. like, I don't want it to always be. 
I knew from my own, <laughs> from knowing myself that it could be ponderous and portentous if I'm not too careful. You know what I mean? So it's like, I want to, I want to be funny too. And I want to have some elements that just point to the sort of joy and fun we're having, but then I want it to be spooky. And I want, I don't want, yeah. I don't like when music is just one no, and, thing. And you know what I mean? You definitely and, accomplished that. So. Like, I, I feel like there's lots of <laughs> charm to it as much as i'm left wondering what's happening kind of thing you know that's you you've hit a <laughs> that's great you've hit a real sweet spot there so yeah i just wanted to say i appreciate this this was a surprise to me when you sent me this news that you made a record i i wasn't totally sure that that's something you did a lot of um so i appreciate it why by the way why jpw why not your full name you know, that's a great question that I don't have a particularly good answer for. I know that I, one of my hot takes, Vish, one of my, the, this is, this will get me canceled on Twitter. No, I'm just kidding. It won't really. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't like band. I hate every band name that I've ever been a part of, um, or for the most sure. part, right? Like I just, to me, I've, I've, and I've been in bands that have cooler names, but anytime I've ever had to come up with one, I've just found myself unsatisfied and dissatisfied and, and just like I couldn't, there's something about it that just really gets me and bugs me for whatever reason. Sure. And so I had ideas and I thought, well, maybe just put it out as Jason P. Woodbury. And then I was like, Jason P. Woodbury, that sounds like a writer's name. I don't know why this was happening okay. in my head. No, that's fine. I'm just, I'm already pondering. <laughs> I'm going to say, I'm going to say that this is a uh, Jason P. Woodbury on the show, not JPW. I find that too vague. Is that okay? <laughs> no, absolutely. Okay. I, yeah. JPW is my name, but when it comes to the music, I guess what I wanted was just a tiny bit of distance, yeah, right? Yeah. Like I yeah. wanted, I wanted people to be able to 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 understand to to you can file this one in this bucket right? right if it says jpw on it that means he's doing music and the other thing was i'm a huge huge fan of elo the uh -huh. band and i'm a huge fan of when prog bands will just be everybody's last name right you right. know like elp emerson right. lake and palmer right. or uh you know whatever else sure so in my goofy stoned imagination or whatever i was thinking jpw is like a prog initials oh, okay. thing um but it's all of this is to say i also thought it would just look kind of cool on a sticker yeah and that was uh and that's what that's what we did on the cover of the record was just that yellow sticker that says jpw and i, I was like for whatever reason it was just a weird I don't know I see I don't know no I appreciate that so it was graphically <laughs> in, inspired it was uh, to give yourself a little bit of mystery maybe uh, maybe and, and also <laughs> separated from maybe what your name is uh, maybe known for uh, these days yeah yeah, yeah. alright I appreciate yeah. that now if people want to yeah. learn I have a couple of questions here uh, can yeah. you tell us a little bit about your future plans, uh, whether there's touring or, or more recordings coming up? And, and also within that, if people want to learn more about such things, uh, where they can go to learn more about uh, JPW, this record, and, and anything else you want them to, to, you know, to follow you, those sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. Well, on the sort of musical front, Kirimoto has been playing shows, JPW and uh and my friend Zach, his combo Dadweed, we've been doing these sort of combined shows where um, he's got a record out called High Time, and 
we just we've just always been really close buddies for a long time now so we're at that point where it's like we we want to play music and we want to have friends contribute but managing bands is tough and can be very tough so we hatched this idea of just sort of like well let's have a band we'll call it jpw and dadweed or dadweed and jpw and we'll do some songs from his record we'll do some some songs from my record and then we we made a whole record together that we're just about we're just about done with and it's a 50 50 uh duo project um and so we'll play some songs from that so we've got some shows coming up check check uh yeah check twitter or yeah you can just you can just check you know for updates but yeah so so dadweed and jpw are playing shows i'm doing lots of stuff with wasteoids which is the project i do with sam means we make podcasts and we make videos and we're doing some really really fun stuff that i'm obsessed obsessed with some of the the people we're working with right now Documa, which is Bobby Marcos from the band Cloakroom. We're working on some projects. Oh, um, nice. Sal- Salvador Cresta, who is this really amazing Argentinian uh, video director. He makes a show for Wasteoid. So I just have a huge, having <laughs> so busy. much fun doing You're that. A busy guy. Yeah. Very, very busy. Yeah. And then, of course, Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. Yeah. We do that every, uh, every week. And we've got just so many great talks coming up oh, that nice. I'm just... I'm just over the moon about some of the the people who have been hanging out on the show and I love making that show. Yeah. And and I think I said this when we talked, but really your show remains an inspiration for me and has been an inspiration and and was one of those things that really helped me remember like hey, I could I could do this. <laughs> Great. We could That's we could whole... do this. We could put ourselves out yeah. there. We could, yeah. you know, and and to me, uh, your show is just a, a beautiful example of that DIY ethic and and creativity at work. So it really means a lot to be on on oh, your well, just, on creative control. That's so I, I'm, that's too kind, Jason, and it's greatly appreciated. <laughs> and the, and I'll say the feelings mutual. It is meaningful to me to know that you're out there. It, it makes I think seeing my peers and like minded uh, colleagues doing things is when I'm feeling low. It's motivational. Uh, it it yeah. helps me to be like, no, I'm not alone doing this. And and there is a point to this and all those sorts of questions that sometimes pop up when you're, for me, it's always like, okay, I've got everyone booked for the month I'm in. Got to do it all over again the next month. Who am I going to get? I know. How am I going to figure this out? And it's a lot. Uh, but enough about me. I just want to say thank you for the kind words and uh, the feeling is mutual. So thank you for all the things you're doing. Uh, if we can go out on a song from this JPW record, I wondered if you can pick one for us uh, and tell us why you chose it. You know, I think it would be cool to go out on something happening, the first track from it. Okay. And uh, and maybe the reason I why I'd pick that one is because it just... Um, I love the way Zach's drums sound. We tracked two two different drum kits for that and he is like one of the most precise and like intensely technical players I've ever worked with and it was so much fun to tell him 
to be sloppier and looser <laughs> and and have him be like oh, i'll give it a shot and i was like looser and then we'd do another take and we got it just sounding so shambolic to me that one is just like i always get um i get a kick out of hearing those drums and i'm such a fan of listening to him play oh. them so that's the one i'd pick all right well this is sort of the half title track from the yeah. new album something happening <laughs> always happening by jpw this is track one this is something happening uh jason a pleasure to have you on the show thank you for making time for me i hope you enjoyed yourself and and best oh, of luck immensely. in the future yeah thank you so much of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey they can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wagovi and zep pound for those who qualify plus they accept most insurance plans To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Ah, it's very nice to reconnect with uh, Jason uh, P. Woodbury there. I haven't talked to him really since we uh, had our talk for his show, Transmissions. Very nice of Jason to be on this, the 780th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available just about wherever you get your podcasts. If you can't find an episode that uh, you've heard about and you're looking for it, uh, or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my monthly newsletter, you can do all of those things. Ideally, I think, at uh, my website there. Just visit uh, vishkana.com. You can also like Creative Control on uh, Facebook. There's a page still up and running. Uh, you can also follow the show for now on Twitter at Vish Creative, or you can follow me directly on Twitter and Instagram at vishkana. Also, please visit patreon.com slash creative control to make a flexible monthly donation to support this donor-driven podcast six dollars american or more a month grants you access to exclusive content get uh, episodes earlier than everybody else uh you get uh, some bonus stuff content that uh, no one else gets and uh, also if you're interested in receiving a creative control t-shirt just message me on patreon and if i don't get some more messages about these t-shirts i'm burning them i've had these t-shirts a long time some of them i you know it's it fits and starts every once in a while i'll get three orders and i'm like what happened and then nothing and then so they just sit there down there in the basement wondering what the hell i'm doing up here and i go down and i talk to them because i'm losing my mind and i say it's all right t-shirt's not your fault don't worry they'll be ordered soon just relax and uh see i'm losing it anyway i want (laughs) to thank you for your support of the show on patreon and i'd like to send you a t-shirt and get them out of my house learn more at patreon.com slash creative control Thanks again to the wonderful Alberta record retailer Blackbird Music, locations in Edmonton and Calgary, Alberta, but also a website where you can order uh, records uh, and they'll mail them to you if, if it's possible, if they can get them. You'll learn more at blackbird.ca. also want to thank Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario, for their in-kind support for this show. Thanks, as always, to my friend Jim Guthrie for letting me use some music that he made himself and then loans to me. You can learn more about Jim at jimguthrie.org. And finally, thank you so much for listening to this episode with JPW, Jason P. Woodbury. Thanks again to Jason. I hope you enjoyed this chat, uh, those of you listening uh, right now to me speaking. If you uh, didn't know Jason's work, I hope you'll check it out. And otherwise, I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast or follow it and tell your friends all about it, and maybe they'll do the same things and help spread the word about creative control. All right, I'm going to leave you now, but I will talk to you very soon. Thank you. Be well. Bye for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.